From Verge headquarters in Indianapolis, I'm Matt Hunkler with Powder Keg Igniting Startups. And in the upcoming conversation, you'll learn how customer service is being completely disrupted by technology and why an often overlooked area of business presents a massive opportunity to innovative companies. Well, customer service is being disrupted in the same way that marketing has been disrupted, but we don't talk about it enough. Uh, Everybody thinks they're good at customer service, but they're not. In fact, uh, the research from Forrester says that 80% of businesses say that they deliver superior customer service. 8% of their customers agree. So we have this like massive problem here where everybody thinks they're good at it except for your customers whose opinion actually counts. That's Jay Baer, a social media and customer service expert, thought leader, keynote speaker, podcaster, and New York Times best-selling author of five books, including Hug Your Haters, which is a book on customer service in the 21st century, which made waves in the business community when it hit bookstores in 2016. In this interview, Jay shares his personal entrepreneurial journey and the lessons that he learned on his way to being one of the most influential marketers and customer service experts on the planet. You'll learn how you can create your own entrepreneurial path just like Jay has, connecting with the influencers and disarming the gatekeepers to pave the way. And you'll learn some of the best techniques that forward-thinking companies are using to revamp their customer service for the 21st century. All of that and more coming up on Powder Keg Igniting Startups, where every week we share the untold stories of innovation, leadership, and technology beyond Silicon Valley. Here's a great way to listen to Powder Keg on your commute, at the gym, or anytime you need a quick hit of inspiration. I've got just three words for you. Subscribe on iTunes. Yes, we are in the iTunes store, and you can find us by searching for Powder Keg. That's Powder Keg, all one word. Or you can simply go to powderkeg.co slash iTunes, which is going to take you directly to all of our episodes with our amazing guests. This episode of Powder Keg is brought to you by Developer Town. Developer Town has helped more than 200 leaders of businesses ranging from startups to Fortune 100 companies launch new products with the right approach. So what's the right approach? Here's Developer Town partner and senior designer Darren Shapurji to explain. A lot of times you're going to run into a typical development shop that is just, give me my marching orders, give me the list of features and priorities, and I will build it. I don't, there isn't this, I'm going to immerse myself in what your, you know, what your market does or what your product does. I'm just here to build what you tell me to build. We will never be like that. We are a company that is going to constantly challenge assumptions and ideologies of what exists today and how they can be better and how we can make them better. Developer Town is not a typical development shop. They're serious about providing the tools and the digital product strategy that companies and entrepreneurs need to build these digital products. They validate your product strategy through customer research, rapid prototyping, and testing. They design and develop quickly and iteratively by keeping users at the center of your strategy. And they help you launch with nothing short of raving fans and paying customers that believe in your product. Learn more at www.developertown.com slash powderkeg. That's www.developertown.com slash powderkeg for more information. Developer Town, start something. 
Here we go, powder keggers. Today's guest is none other than Jay Bear, who is a serial entrepreneur, a New York Times bestselling author, an incredible keynote speaker, an angel investor, and so, so much more. But Jay is probably best known for founding Convince and Convert, which is a conversion rate optimization or CRO blog turned now into a consulting firm focusing on social media marketing and customer service. He and his team work with some of the best brands in the world, including Adidas, Allstate, Cisco, Oracle, and even the United Nations. Meanwhile, the Convince and Convert blog continues to be ranked among the very best content marketing blogs on the web. And their Social Pros podcast has been named one of the best podcasts for entrepreneurs in 2017. Just last year, Jay published his fifth book, hug your haters. It's all about how critical it is to listen to your feedback from customers, especially the ones who hate you or maybe have a little bit of a problem with you. This is the first modern book on customer service and it is essential reading for anyone who cares about their business. If you'd like to see what Jay is up to these days, definitely jump over to his personal website at jbear.com and that's J J A Y bear b-a-e-r dot com or you can follow him on twitter at jbear i recorded this conversation with jay in his offices in beautiful bloomington indiana now this is actually one of my favorite places in the world because it's where i went to college at indiana university or kelly school of business and I recorded this conversation at a very interesting time, just before Hug Your Haters hit the shelves at bookstores. So all the research and case studies were fresh in Jay's mind, and it was the perfect opportunity to take a step back and look at the incredible entrepreneurial journey that got Jay to where he is today. In this conversation, we talk about all kinds of things from Jay's start in Phoenix, Arizona, all the way to coming to Indiana, what brought him here. In this conversation, you'll learn how to handle all kinds of customers, but particularly how to handle your disgruntled customers and how you can leverage that into real business value. You're also going to learn about why your business network is the most important asset you could possibly acquire and how you can develop your own world-class network just like Jay. I like that we get to talk about how to approach customer service in the digital age, but I love that we get into some of the psychology behind customer service and ultimately dive into why it's so important to learn to love, yes, love your haters. Jay is an amazing storyteller, so you're in for a treat. Please enjoy this interview with Jay Bear. Jay, I want to talk about all the things that you're up to these days, um, but first, I would love to talk about sort of the history of where you got your entire entrepreneurial mojo, your your business sense, um, some of the things that were inflection points along the way. Uh, but first, let's talk about where we are. Uh, where are we right now, Jay? Uh, we are in the global headquarters of Convince and Convert, also known as my basement in uh, Bloomington, <laughs> Indiana. It's a really cool basement. Thank you. I, I really like uh, the way you've decorated it down here. I mean, it looks like I could entertain myself for, you know, at least days down we got here. got plenty of booze, too. Oh, no kidding. All right, so I can stay here after you have to Whatever catch your you plan. Need. Whatever you <laughs> All right, need. cool. Got it on tape. Um, you've got this place decorated uh, with a certain uh, type of art down here. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I've kind of been a fan of this style for a long time, my wife and I. It's uh, Canadian First Nations art. So it's uh, it's the Aboriginal art of Canada, if you will. And it's from uh, the Pacific Northwest. So Vancouver, Victoria, uh, Vancouver Island, that, that area. There's six or eight different 
different um, tribes there, and, and they all uh, make different um, styles of art, but but often carved in, into cedar. And almost all of the art from that region of the world is figurative, and so they're all different animals. So here we've got a we have a beaver, we have a skunk, uh, we have a, a, a trout, uh, a raven, which is one of the most famous animals in that um, kind of collection of art. There's a, an orca, uh, and and each of these animals have different legends um, mm. for for those peoples, and and each of those animals have different um, kind of spirits and talents, and they use these animals to, to tell stories, and it's almost like their Bible. So where we would turn to a Bible passage and learn something from it, they'll say, well, let me tell you the story about the beaver. And that's a story for their kids and their culture. And I just really, I, I like the style of the art. It's very, uh, very colorful and, um, and linear. And I just like the, the message in the story too. Well, I think it's really interesting that, that you have these artifacts that are representations of stories because you yourself are just an amazing storyteller. You know, I think that it's one of the things that comes through in all of your books, in every speech I've seen you uh, present, and then also even just in emceeing, you always seem to find the right story to tie ideas together or bring an idea to life. Uh, could you tell me the story of how you first got introduced to entrepreneurship? Well, in terms of storytelling, too, I, I was named in high school most likely to be a game show host. No kidding. So I've almost achieved that goal. And, and, <laughs> and so I, I kind of come by it naturally, I guess. You know, the entrepreneurial thing was sort of always um, around me. My my family uh, owned a furniture store uh, in Nebraska since like the 1870s. My great, 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 great grandfather and great, great and great and everybody has been self-employed like my whole life. Um, and my dad... Uh, we, I was in Nebraska, I was only like a year old, but he went out to Arizona on a flight and it was a sort of real estate deal. Like, Hey, it's winter in Nebraska. It sucks here. Fly on out to Arizona for free and we'll show you some land. He's like, I don't care. I'll go. And he was a financial planner at the time working in an insurance company. He's like 23. He's like, I'll go. Uh, and so he's in the airport in Phoenix and meets a guy who says, where are you going? And my dad says, Lake Havasu. Now, for those of you listening, Lake Havasu is now America's home of the London Bridge and a famous spring break destination right on the border of California and Arizona. But at that point, there was like 500 people there. Oh, wow. So uh, my dad goes, I'm going to Lake Havasu to look in some land. And the guy's like, Lake Havasu, oh, man. I've always been thinking about putting a restaurant there. This guy happened to own a very famous steakhouse in Phoenix. Like, I want to put a restaurant like that. So do you want to run that? My dad's like, well, I've never worked in a restaurant. Like, I don't care. I like you. You're a good guy. So my dad's (laughs) like, oh, sure. So my dad comes home like two days later. I'm an infant. My mom's a school teacher. And my dad says, hey, we're going to move to Arizona and I'm going to open a restaurant. You know, and it's like... You know, but, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. So like, wait, what? So packed up, did that. And then my dad started an whoa, whoa, ice company. T- time out. So everyone was just on board. They're like, I, I don't, right, I don't know. I, mean, I, was only, I was only a year old. So my, my, my ability to negotiate was, was limited. Sure. Uh, I don't think my mom was fully on board, uh, but, but I think it was one of those, well, we're in this together. So, uh, so yeah, we moved out there wow. and, and he started a restaurant it was successful. And then he started the very first ice company making ice. Uh, and this Lake Havasu, for those of you who don't know, is literally the hottest city in the U S the highest average temperature of any city in the U S. And so owning an ice company is a good gig. So we did that. And so, uh, my dad's always had sort of the entrepreneurial bug. Um, and, and that kind of wore off on me a little bit, I think. Did, did you work for your dad? At no, times? I was always too young. Well, I didn't really, I never really had, um, uh, a real job for my dad. They got, mm. uh, my parents got divorced when I was younger. Then he moved back to Nebraska for a while. But when I was little and my dad owned the steakhouse, my job, and I was like seven, 
uh, my job was to man the jukebox. So he would give me a roll of quarters. Just like, okay, whatever you want to play, this is your gig. Just don't let the music stop. So that was my job. Uh, And so I know so much more about like early seventies rock (laughs) than I should, because that was my, that was my gig. And I think that may have gotten me on my path uh, to, to be in radio and podcasting. I started the radio station at the university of Arizona uh, and now do lots and lots of podcasting. So maybe, maybe that long ago jukebox gig was, uh, was the impetus for all that early appreciation for audio. Yes, for Helen Reddy and uh, a lot of other like weird, you know, Olivia Newton-John and Donnie <laughs> Marie Osmond, like a lot of things that are well before your time. That, well, these are all familiar names to me. Uh, I don't know if you knew this, but my first entrepreneurial venture was taking vinyl records and putting them on the popular format at the time, the compact disc. The compact disc, the <laughs> CDR. Yes, exactly. As it were. Nice. I, and I had a CDR burner. Which is just hilarious that that was that's the, actually the a way job. We do, yeah, we, that's, we call it transition, transitional occupation. <laughs> exactly. Um, well, I, I know that you at one point in time were a shopkeep. Mm-hmm. Is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, did you learn any lessons in business when you're working as a shopkeep? Well, I, I was never really. Uh, I never really had any prominent position, uh, but I but I was certainly worked in retail quite a mm-hmm. bit when I was young, especially in high school, a lot and. Uh, I, I had a circumstance, and I actually talk about it in my new book, where a guy, um, I was, I was um, a stock boy, and so one of the things I did was man the returns desk. And a guy comes in, and he has underwear that he wants to return. And this underwear is, is not new. This underwear had been worn, and, and not just one time. This, this had been multiple times worn. He's like, yeah, I'd like to return this. I'm like, well, I have to ask, how did you know it had been worn? It was all stretched out. Like, it, you know, it was <laughs> oh, like, wow. you know, you could tell it was not like, <laughs> this is not snapback, right? I mean, the, <laughs> the elastic's all like kind of funky. And I'm like, hmm. <laughs> so he's like, I'd like to return this. I'm like, okay, well, what's wrong with it? It's the wrong size. I'm like, okay, well, before or after he wore it a few times. So I'm like, okay, hold on. I got to, I got to ask about this. So I go to my boss, uh, whose name was, and I swear this is true, Mr. Big, which is the best name for a manager, <laughs> best name for a manager ever. Like everybody's boss should be named Mr. Big. Yeah. So I'm like, Hey, Mr. Big, um, this guy's at the front and he wants to return some underwear and the underwear is used. And so I suspect that the answer to that is no. He's like, no, actually our policy is we'll, we'll take anything, no questions asked. And, uh, even in a weird circumstance like this. And I didn't really understand that. Like I couldn't, I'm like, wait, you, like, Really? That's our policy? That seems so silly. And I couldn't, I couldn't figure it out. But what is interesting about that is, is that, you know, Mr. Big and the company figured, hey, to the price of doing business, right? That, mm. that yes, some of your customers suck and some of your customers sucked then, which is 30 years ago, and some of your customers will suck 30 years from now. What changes is technology, right? What changes is, is um, consumer uh, behavior and how customers interact with businesses. But the, but the core sort of whether your customers are honest or not, right? Um, mm-hmm. That doesn't change. And the ratio doesn't change. And, and and the reason I think that's an important story to tell is that what I find today is a lot of businesses are really frustrated by customer service and and, and the disruption that techno- like technology has caused. So you get lots of businesses, including businesses owned by really good friends of mine who purposefully, willfully, and strategically do not answer complaints on Facebook, do not answer complaints on Yelp, do not answer complaints on TripAdvisor, do not answer complaints on Angie's List. It's not accidental. It's a purpose. They, they just don't. That's our plan. We don't answer. And and to me, that's crazy. And, and, and I asked them about that. Like, well, we you know, those guys at Yelp suck and that's totally BS. And I'm like, why are you blaming the messenger, right? Mr. Big didn't blame the car and say, well, if it wasn't for these cars enabling these customers to come back in and return underwear, we wouldn't have these problems, right? So uh, your customer's morality remains static. The only thing that changes is technology.
Well, it's clear that you're an early adopter of technology and have even invested in you know, over a dozen technology companies. Yeah. And I want to make sure we talk a little bit about that. Sure. Take me back to that gap between Shopkeep to starting your first company. What were some yeah. of like, those pivotal inflection points that led you to the path that... So when I was in high school, um, I did a lot of writing and that led me to journalism. And so I was the editor of the school newspaper a couple of times and it was a really good high school newspaper. We won lots and lots of awards oh, and awesome. um, I, I did a lot of writing for that. And, and then I ended up uh, working for the city newspaper writing high school sports. So I was oh, the cool. high school sports columnist, which was awesome, right? Because nobody actually knows what happens in high school games. Like, you know, f- football, yes, but anything else, no. Nobody goes to high school baseball. Nobody goes to high school swimming or volleyball. So I would just go get the scorebook from the coaches and any of my friends that played the game, like they were the star of the game regardless. So I'd be like, you know, the, the, the fighting Knights um, lost six to three, but uh, Al Prente had a key walk in the ninth <laughs> inning, right? You know, I'm, I'm sort of like trying to, <laughs> trying to craft the story. So my friends get all the ink. So that was good times. Awesome. Uh, so I did that. And then that tastemaker. Le- yeah, absolutely. So uh, that led me to um, going to school for journalism wow. at the University of Arizona. And once I was there, I realized that I was kind of actually burnt out on it. And, and so I got involved in politics. I had a class, first class, actually the first class I ever had in college was honors political science. It's actually where I met my wife. No first day of college, first class. Um, That's pretty great luck. I knew right away. She definitely did not, did not know right away. <laughs> Took her quite a while to come around. And so... Uh, I had an amazing, amazing professor who's now a professor at University of Virginia, and we did a whole unit on political consulting and kind of political campaigns, and I was just fascinated by it, by by the whole concept of marketing an individual. And I ended up um, switching my major to poli-sci and got an internship for a very, very prominent um, political consultancy in Phoenix and and launched a career in politics. So for the first few years of my career, I was a political consultant, ran campaigns, ran races for governor, for Senate, for a statewide initiative for president, did all kinds of things like that, um, and, and eventually kind of got out of that and into more traditional marketing, too. Well, and you were obviously good at it, uh, you know, if you can continued to maintain a career in that path. Uh, was there a mentor or a handful of mentors or guides that helped? Yeah, so what was interesting is that um, that professor um, was actually a pollster. So he had, he was a professor, but his side gig with his wife was as a political pollster. So he was really uh, one of my mentors and, and kind of led me into that business. And I really liked it. And Can you uh, explain what a pollster is? So somebody who does surveys. So yeah. actually does public opinion surveys, which of course is the lifeblood of politics in many yeah. ways. And so I, I, did, I realized later, like a long time after, that that's why I ended up getting into digital marketing because the mechanics are really similar. The great thing about politics is that you either win or you lose. Like, you know, the day after the election, like you're elected or you're not elected, right? There's no, there's no question about that. Um, And so I was in traditional marketing for a while after I got into politics and I didn't like it so much because it's like, well, we ran some ads and I don't know, did we sell some stuff? Well, I don't know, maybe we did, but was that from print or radio? I don't really know. And then digital came around and I was super early on that. And I can tell you that story. And and Hmm. I loved it because it was so measurable. Like, oh, I know whether somebody clicked. I know whether somebody opened this email. I know... I have a conversion funnel. Like there's math there that, that I can understand and I can test and I can optimize. And so to me, um, online marketing is, is very similar to politics and, and uh, I think that's why I ended up there. Oh, that's really interesting. And, and it's interesting to see how politics today 
are now you know adopting the marketing it comes back around right so, it's yeah. all it yeah it's it's like this weird infinity loop so so digital was like politics and now politics is, has taken a play uh, a playbook all, all the social media you know look at look at what in the Republican primary right now is happening it's it's so much of of what we would consider to be sort of a social media you know um, campaign sure absolutely well and I know Obama was the first uh, president to ever have his own staff videographer. Absolutely. And, yeah. And I've Making actually, content, baby. Yeah, exactly. Just, just pumping it out. And, um, and now everyone has their own videographer yeah. and, and they're doing and their, this. Own, and their own Snapchat account and everything else. And here's all the behind the scenes stuff. And, and when I was in politics, you would never think of doing something behind the scenes or, or less than, you know, it was, Hey, if we're going to do any video, we're getting like the full on legit film crew and, you know, we're getting dry ice and lasers and professional <laughs> lighting. And, you know, there was no like, Hey, let's just run and gun it. Like that was not even... I mean, it was like inconceivable that you would do that. That's that's so interesting. Well, so so you're in politics. Why did you decide to get out of politics? So I, the problem with politics at that time, it's no longer true, is that if you're not working on a campaign, so once campaigns are over, you had nothing to do for like a year. Mm -hmm. So you'd really only do elections every other year. Now you're always running just because of the way politics works. But back then, in the off year, you typically had to go be a lobbyist. And I didn't like lobbying because it, there was no finality to it. And you're like, well... I kind of convinced some people, whatever. I just didn't like it as well. So, and it's also when you're when you're like seriously in the campaign business like that, it's a tough gig. Yeah, it is a tough gig. It's not a good family gig because during the high season, I mean, you're you're seriously doing you know you're doing eighteen hour days like all the time, and it's really rough. And so it's like, ah, I don't. Uh, this is, I can't see myself doing this for twenty five years. It's just yeah. tough. So I got into um, more traditional marketing. I'm like, look, if I can get somebody elected, I can sell soup or whatever. <laughs> so I ended up uh, working for about four years as a marketing director for waste management, the big uh, environmental services guys. So oh, wow. I can tell you, Matt, so much about landfill design and uh, enterprise Go recycling on. programs. <laughs> uh, so I did that for, for a while and I really liked it. Um, and then I left there uh, and ended up as the spokesperson for the Arizona Department of Juvenile Corrections, where my job was primarily to give tours of juvenile prison, which is not even as good as I just made it sound in the previous sentence. No kidding. It's fun times. What, what made that job uh, position stand out to you that said, I have to apply to that? <laughs> well, it was, it was more the other way around. So sure. I, I liked my waste management job a lot. And then my boss got tr uh, promoted. Oh. And so the new guy who came in was an idiot. He's like really bad. And I was young and foolish. And I'm like, I can't work for this guy. I quit. Mm -hmm. And so then I'll take any job. And I ended up as a spokesman for the prison. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, the guy who, who I quit because of got fired in like 30 days. Yeah. So I learned a really important lesson there about, about patience, about, hey, you know, let things find their own level. Um, you don't have to, to, you know, be knee jerk and reactionary. So I was I worked for the government for four months. That was it. That was the extent of my and I still get like pension checks for like one penny. Um, <laughs> and so uh, I decided to take my leave after they put me in charge. Like, oh, you're doing a great job here, Jay. Uh, we're going to put you in charge of the, uh, we're going to rebrand the uh, Juvenile Corrections Department. First, we're going to start with business cards. We've got a committee. It's a 13-person committee. You can be in charge of it. I'm like, if it takes us 13 people to read us on the business cards, this is probably not the entrepreneurial culture for me. So I, <laughs> uh, at the same time, some friends of mine had started the very first internet company in Arizona. This is 1993. Wow. And I had met them at school and we were having beers as one does. And they said, hey, you know, this internet company that we started is starting to get kind of busy and we don't know anything about marketing. And I said, well, that's good because when you say the word internet, I don't know what that word means. And I really didn't. You know, at that point, it was basically AOL, right? That was it. 
Uh, but I'm like, look, I'll do anything to not give another tour of this prison and to not run this business card <laughs> committee. So I walked in the next day and quit uh, and started as the vice president of marketing for an internet company, having essentially never been online, which wow. is a very interesting first day of work. You're like, whoa, this is crazy. Yeah, I bet it was like drinking from a fire hose. Absolutely. And it turned out my partner in that business, my buddy from school, invented web hosting. Um, so... Before he invented this, it used to be back in the day um, that if you wanted a website, you had to have a server. It was one domain to one box. So you could only run one domain name on an actual, an actual piece of hardware, one server. Yep. So he invented the partitioning algorithm that would allow you to run multiple domains on a single box, which of course begat everything that we have now, Rackspace, GoDaddy, you know, whatever, oh, no kidding. WordPress. Um, and, but for a while, we were the only ones in the world who could do virtual hosting. Uh, and so we went from a handful of customers, mostly dial-up, like, you know, that thing <laughs> yeah. in, in Phoenix to about 1,200 hosting uh, customers in 23 countries. Oh, my god! And that happened in like 60 days. You know, it was no like kidding. insane, you know, like all the apocryphal stories, sleeping on the floor to make sure the servers don't melt down, like all of that happened. <laughs> uh, we did all those things, right? Kind of hyper growth. And um, did you get, were you guys able to patent that or so, protect that in any way? We were able to protect it a little bit, but mm -hmm. not in any, it was, it, the technology moved so fast, yeah. you know, it was really tough. And sure. so, uh, we made all kinds of classic mistakes. I was the senior partner at 23, you know, so we were, we just <laughs> did a lot of bad things. And, and so I ended up leaving to start, um, another internet company and we sold that business, uh, ultimately to MindSpring, which eventually became Earthlink, um, back in the, in the day. So no kidding. Uh, the, the first company or the second company? That you first started? company. Yeah. That, first those company. guys. Yeah. We sold it. Wow. That's awesome. Yeah. What, what made you decide to leave and start the next one? So it was just getting too much rancor, too much like intra friend rancor, you sure. know, um, it, it just, and pick your partners. Yeah. And, 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 you know, it, when, when you grow like that, we just didn't know what we were doing. Number one, you know, we did, we needed a grown up, uh, and yeah. we tried to get a grown up and we couldn't get a grown up fast enough. And then it just sort of melted down. So, and then at the same time, I got a really great opportunity. Uh, I was the president of ad two, which is the young professionals advertising, um, club mm. in, in Arizona at the time. And I m met a lot of people in that gig and I got hired a way to start an internet company for a family-owned media conglomerate, which had three TV stations, three radio stations, and a magazine. And they're like, we got TV, we got radio, we got magazine. We need some of that internet. Can you, can you <laughs> get us some internet? And I was like, yeah, I can get you some internet. So they poached me away from my partners and, and set me up with a sweet gig, sweet salary. And so I come in the first day and I'm like, okay, what's the plan? They're like, well, you're supposed to tell us the plan. I'm like, Oh, so you really have no, you just said, like, when you said get us some internet, that was literally what you meant. I'm like, okay. So they gave me a desk and an office and a notepad and, like, figure it out. So uh, we. That's cool. Yeah. It was, Autonomy's cool. Yeah, it was. And so we we got into the, the dial up business, did a partnership with, um, which was then Quest, and then uh, built a large local website. Um, so what, you know, like indiestar.com, like that kind of a thing, but powered by the TV stations. And at one point, um, we became the second largest TV station based website in the US. Um, and wow. then we got into web design and did all kinds of other stuff. That was crazy. I, I want to go back to add to the professional network that you joined because Jay, you're probably one of the best networked people that I know. You know a lot of people, but a lot of people know you as well. And I think that's probably by virtue of what you do as, as a, a source of income in terms of being a thought leader, an author, uh, you're emceeing conferences where other connectors are presenting. So yep. you're probably getting to know them. Uh, but then also what you're doing with content, you know, atomizing it, putting it on several different platforms at once. 
And it sounds like this add to might have been sort of the early starting grounds of that professional. Yeah, network. I mean, even even before that, Matt. I mean, it's like my my grandfather and my dad um, really got me sort of tied into that concept. Right? They were involved in every club and organization that there was, mm. you know, and and you know, in everything, in, in Rotary and in Kiwanis and in Jesters and in this and in that and in this and in that. And so they taught me like, look, you know, if you want to make a difference, you've got to be involved, right? You know, you're either part of the problem or part of the solution. And from a very young age, it, it wasn't even a conversation. It was just that that's just how it works, you know? And I was always, I've always been a joiner. Like I've always, you know, liked to be around people and be in organizations and work on things together. And so when I was in high school, um, I, I was, I was involved in like, I don't know, like like a dozen, fifteen clubs is crazy. I think that's awesome. My my mom's friend is still like guidance counselor there, and she says that I still hold the all time record, <laughs> the all time record for most most bullet points on the high school resume of of anybody's ever been in that school. So my kids now, I've high school students now at home, and they're always bitching about how busy they're. I'm like, you've got no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> like you wouldn't know busy if it walked into your room and laid on your bed. When I got out of college. Um, and I was super busy in college too. I ran the student activities council and planned all the concerts and ran the radio station, all this other stuff. And so when I got out, same thing, I'm like, okay, join a bunch of stuff. So add two was a great place for me. I started a, my own club um, called version 27 for tech entrepreneurs um, way cool. back in the day. I'm like, there's a club for this. I'm going to start one. You know everything about that. <laughs> right. Uh, and it was called version 27 because we held meetings on the 27th floor of a downtown office building. And uh, so I just always have done that. I always feel like, you're going to meet a lot of people that you like. You're going to meet a lot of people that you might eventually do business with. And you're also going to meet all your competition, which is also a good thing to do because everybody's everybody who's a competitor is a potential collaborator. And I really believe that. And so um, I try to be involved in as many things uh, as I can. And, and I've met a lot of people in Ad2. In fact, some of the people I still work with today, my graphic designer, uh, Chris Bonsack, I met in that club. Um, Christina Pater, who was my editorial assistant on my new book, I met in that club. And this is... You know, we're talking about 25 years ago, right? Wow. And we're still doing business together. How do you decide who you stay in contact with? Or do you try to stay in contact with everybody? I mean, it's, you know, it's funny. It's way easier now with Facebook. Sure. Because, you know, you at least have some idea of what people are doing. Um, and some of it's just random. And some of it is... Um, people stay in the same industry. Other people I know, uh, like there's a good friend of mine, Dean Trossel. He and I used to do a lot of business together when he was in marketing, but then he ended up going into car sales. Huh. So I bought a lot of cars from him, but we don't have a, <laughs> we don't, you know, he doesn't do what I do anymore. So, right. so it's different. So some of that is just people going different directions and things like that. So, but I try and keep tabs on as many people as I can, because you never know when you're going to need to, you know, need to get somebody. And I find that as I get older, I want to work with people that I've worked with in the past because I don't have to explain anything to them. Like they already know what I want. They already know how I work. We already have a shared history, but most importantly, I trust them because they've delivered the goods in the past and we have a relationship. That's not to say that I won't work with new people. I do it every day. I mean, we run guest posts every day from people I've never heard of. Um, but, but when the chips are down, right? Like I don't care what it costs. I want to work with people that I already trust, right? It just, you know, it, it reduces risk. Um, and I'm moving so fast all the time that, that reducing risk is more important than cash flow, more important than a lot of things. As you've built up the trust along the way, it seems like a lot of that trust has also been poured into Convince and Convert, which is the brand that you've created for your current yeah, trying to. company, which, which is amazing. You know, it's consistently ranked as a top marketing and technology blog. 
um, the content that's coming out there, you know, if, if not daily, several times a day yeah. um, and promoted through all of your social media accounts. Can you take me back to the moment you decided to start that company? So I, um, I had a company in Arizona that I started in 2000 um, called Mighty Interactive, which is a digital consultancy. Um, an online marketing firm, ran it for a few years, sold it to a traditional um, ad agency, worked there for a few years on an earnout. And then when my earnout was up, my plan was to not do any of this. So my plan circa 2007 was to go teach. Uh, and I had a bunch of different university gigs lined up that people wanted me to do. And I was going to kind of do that professorial deal. But at that point, we had the simultaneous collapse of the stock market and the real estate market. Sure. And so I had a bunch of money in real estate because in Arizona, that's what one does. Um, and <laughs> no. so all of a sudden, I was like, oh, I no longer have the cash to just kind of go do that. I'm going to have to get back up on the horse and ride. And so I started Convince and Convert. And the reason this company is called Convince and Convert, Matt, I don't know if anybody even knows this. This may be a world debut. Um, I love it. Is that uh, my original premise was I was going to do conversion rate optimization. I did a lot of conversion rate testing optimization, multivariate, AB, a lot of that stuff in my previous gig. And so that's why it's called Convince and Convert, because it was going to be all about conversion. I didn't know that. Um, I realized, though, uh, I started a blog. I'd never blogged before. I wrote a lot of uh, business magazine columns, but I never blogged. I'm like, I'll start a blog on this one. So I started writing blog posts every day. And so I'd write about email, and I'd write about conversion rate, and every once in a while I'd write about social media. And I realized with a very simple analytics uh, e examination that every time I wrote about social media, I got like 800% more traffic than when I wrote about anything else. And I said, this business is no longer about conversion rate optimization. This business <laughs> is about social media. Yeah. And so ended up picking up some great clients, uh, primarily in agencies, my original um, thrust for this business was helping agencies kind of make the digital transformation and understand how social media works. And we still do some of that work, but over the last eight years, um, now my team and I, and there's about a dozen uh, of us that are sort of primary collaborators that convince and convert I me. Mean, we're working with the best brands in the world. We're working with United Nations and Adidas and Allstate and Cisco and Oracle. It's, it's remarkable um, what, what we've been able to do, but you said it, it's not me, it's them. Like it's really not it's not Jay, it's a whole team. Yeah. And one of the things that's been um, challenging, and we've worked really hard on it, is to set it up so that Convince and Convert has an identity, right? Because if people yeah. think it's Jay's company or Jay's blog or Jay's podcast, then if it's not me, then they're like, well, where's Jay? You know, And so <laughs> sure. it, it, it takes years, like literally years, to, to change that, that thinking so that people realize, oh, it's not just him, there's a whole crew there. But that's one of the reasons, the most important reason, that I didn't call this company Jay Barron Associates or something, because then you totally boxed yourself in a corner. Yep, that's really true. And I know a lot of other entrepreneurs have struggled with that. I mean, it's, you can see it in case study after case study after case study. And, and just in the marketing tech world, uh, one that comes to mind is SEO Moz, or you know now Moz, uh, with yep. it originally being Rand's blog, yep. and then transforming into a consultancy, and then a software company. Uh, I imagine that had to be just as difficult. Incredibly. And, and even more so because it's such a much uh, bigger company than we are. And, and he's been, what I love about Rand is that he's been so um, open and transparent about the struggles that he's faced and mistakes that he's made personally in that journey. And that's why people love him. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and, and likewise with yourself, yeah, he's been very transparent and always willing to hop on an interview like this and talk candidly. For you, of course, because I trust you. See, we already talked about that. <laughs> I love it. Full circle. Um, I, I'd love to ask you, you know, you mentioned that you had uh, transitioned to focus on the social media aspect. Yeah. And I'm curious if you remember what your early pitch was for the social media uh, focus to agencies. Well, 
what what was great back in those days, right, is that it, to me, I had already been through this multiple times because in my first career uh, in internet, 93, when we were working at Internet Direct, it was, well, you don't think you need a website, but you do. And, and here's why. Let me show you that your customers are online. And then it was, well, you don't think you need an email newsletter, but you do. Mm-hmm. And here's why, because your competitors are doing it and your customers want it, right? So, you know, by the time we get, you you don't think you need paid search, but you do. And here's why, right? So by the time I get to social media, you don't think you need social media. You don't think your clients need social media, but you do. And here's why, because their customers are already talking about them. I, I'd already, I already run that game like four times yeah. or five times, right? So I already knew it was basically search and replace, right? Search and replace, paid search for social media, same story. Uh, but what was great back then is that you could actually blow people's minds. You just get some simple, you know, social listening software, Radiant 6 or whatever back then. And you just type in, you know, the name of the brand and then turn the laptop around. Yeah. And people are like, oh my God, there's this much conversation out there on the on the interwebs about us on this. What's this twatter? You know, and so <laughs> it, it was, it, you know, it was so easy to prove the point because you're just like, well, look, you know, this is actually happening. I'm not making this up. This is a real thing. And so that that part um, is always fascinating to to shock people into realizing that uh, oh, I'm I'm behind. So once you turned the laptop around and, and showed them uh, everything that was being said about their brand. You had escalated the conversation to that moment to make the ask. Do you remember how you made the ask and got your first customer, so, couple so customers? So what I, what I learned at my previous company um, is that being transparent about not knowing all the answers is incredibly powerful in professional services. And almost nobody does it because usually in professional services, your approach in a pitch is, I know everything, I'm the Wizard of Oz. You need to pay me to tell you the secrets. I always do it the opposite. My killer line, feel free to steal this, is I don't know the answer. I do not know what will work for your company, but I know exactly how to find out. And people love that because they realize that 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 I'm not, you know, it's not it's not magic beans, right? It's not black box. It's like we're we're gonna we're gonna go through a methodology together. And you're going to know where every dollar goes, and you're going to know what every dollar yields. And at the end of that process, together, we're going to identify a recipe that I guarantee will work for your business. Ta-da! You know, That's great. It works every time. Well, I, w- I would imagine you just get an extreme amount of empathy, and, and those customers or potential customers feel like you understand them. Well, I think, I think it's moment. the difference between being a guru, which I don't think is a very easy position to, to, to hold on to. People bestow it upon you, but, but I don't like it. Um, and being a coach, which is much easier. It's like, we're going to do this together. I'm going to show you how to do this, not let me perform magic. Yeah, that's great. Well, and what you're doing now with the book that's coming out, Hug Your Haters, is really focused around that same concept, right? Where you're actually saying, you know, we don't know exactly how to do this. That's right. But yep. here, let me show you what others are doing. Well, customer service is being disrupted in the same way that marketing has been disrupted, but yeah. we don't talk about it enough. Everybody thinks they're good at customer service, but they're not. In fact, the research from Forrester says that 80% of businesses say that they deliver superior customer service. 8% of their customers agree. So we have this like massive problem here where everybody thinks they're good at it except for your customers whose opinion actually counts. And so this disruption is, is, is happening right now. Um, so much of what companies have to contend with now is in public in ways that it wasn't, right? Whether it's social media complaints, discussion board complaints, review site complaints, um, and, and most businesses are still 
thinking about customer service in private. They're thinking about calls and emails. Uh, and, and we have to start interacting with, with customers in the ground that the customers prefer, which is increasingly digital and public, and not insist on dealing with customers in the ground that businesses prefer, which is private email and phone. And so lots of different case studies and examples in the book, small business, large business, US, global, B2B, B2C, kind of showing how customer service is the new marketing. It is the thing that can differentiate you because look, your competition can, and if they smart will, uh, will if they're smart, they'll, they'll steal everything from you. They'll steal your products. They'll borrow your website copy. They'll copy your trade show booth. They'll poach your best customers. They'll go after your best employees. You know, they will do all of those things. But the one thing they can't take from you, the one thing that is yours and yours alone, the one thing that, that they cannot grab is if you genuinely and truly care more about your customers than they do. If you are willing to hold on to your customers in ways that your competition simply is not, if you're willing to invest in customer service and customer experience at a level that they aren't, that is a differentiator. That is the defining factor that will set you apart. And businesses are starting to understand this, right? If I, if I ask you, Matt, who's really great at customer service, you can come up with a couple of names. Everybody listening can. And that's the problem. Yeah. Right. The fact that you can come up with somebody who's good at customer service tells me that it's rare, so rare that it's memorable to you. My vision, it'll probably never happen. My vision, my hope is that after people read this book, Hug Your Haters, that we get to the point a year or two down the road when I say who's great at customer service and you can't come up with an answer because so many companies are good at it. Nobody is exceptional. Yeah, that is I mean, that's a really compelling pitch in and of itself that, you know, you're saying that the future of digital marketing is in your customers and turning your haters into fans yep. or at least not detract at least neutral. That's not right. detractors. Yep. You know, what do you say to the entrepreneurs who are playing by the four hour work week philosophy of yeah. fire your worst customers, yeah. get rid of them, yeah. you know, focus your energy on the 20% that gets you 80% of the results. I don't believe there is any such thing as as a bad customer, right? I, I think all customers are good customers. Now, not not every customer is right, of course, but every customer deserves to be listened to. And this is especially true uh, when customers complain in public because it's a spectator sport. Like, yeah, you want to make that person happy and ideally you want to hold on to their business, but you got to realize that when that person puts you on blast and you ignore them, then all these other people see that. And, and a lack of response is a response. Mm -hmm. It's a response response that says, we don't care about you very much and we don't care about our customers. So yeah, mathematically, it makes sense to say, okay, fire your 20% of your worst customers. But it, but when everybody else sees you do that, what do they think about your business, right? Nobody ever talks about that side of the equation, right? That's a really, really good point. Well, and, and one of the things that I love is, and you even shared one of the stories from the book, uh, Hug Your Haters, uh, here in this podcast earlier in the interview, and all of your books seem to be just jam-packed with really great examples that not only bring the principles to life, but you literally say, steal the strategy. Like, th this is not a metaphor. <laughs> this is not uh, a concept or something just to bring it to life. Like, take this strategy, implement it in your business, and go. Um, do you have a favorite from this book? Ooh, yeah, I do. Uh, I do. I'll tell you just a sec. The, the one thing that I like about this book too is that it's rooted in research, right? So this isn't just like, hey, I have an idea. You should do this because I say so. Right. Um, this book is is full of research that I conducted with Edison, which is one of the biggest and most well-respected attitude collection companies in the US. Um, everything in this book is based on actual research from real consumers. This is not your typical customer service book, which says, you know, don't point and be polite, right? I mean, this is real data about how business needs to act right now 
now as we're having this conversation. It's the first modern book on customer service ever written. Uh, and I think that's why it's, it's doing uh, really well. I think my favorite example from the book um, is from La Pan Quotidienne. And they're a chain of uh, bakery cafes. They're based in Brussels. They have locations in Southern California and also the Northeast, um, but mostly in Europe. And, and there's 220 of them, I guess, something like that, uh, locations. And their director of customer experience, this woman, Erin Pepper, she started with them, I don't know, like two years ago, maybe. And so when she started, she says, my goal as the director of customer experience is to triple the number of complaints, triple the number of complaints. Think about that, right? Interesting. Right? So why is that? Normally, you would say I want fewer complaints. She wants to triple the number of complaints. And here's why, Matt, because the most overrated thing in business, the most overrated thing, and frankly, the most overrated thing in life is praise. Every time somebody says, Matt, you're so good at this, Matt, you're so good at that, it feels amazing, but it teaches you nothing because you already know what you're good at. You always already know. What teaches you something is negative feedback and criticism. Criticism is the Petri dish for improvement. Erin understands that. She wants every customer who has anything less than a 100% perfect experience to let her know. Mm -hmm. Because if she doesn't know, she can't fix it. And that's why I say quite literally that haters, complainers are your most important customers, right? They tell you everything you need to know to get better, but yet we treat them like our least important customers. We have it backwards. Wow. Is there something that she does so, specifically to so do that? The, I think the thing that she does day to day that's so awesome, this is one you should definitely steal. Okay. Um, so anytime somebody has a negative um, feedback for them in a review site, and as a restaurant, they get uh, a lot of reviews on like a Yelp and a TripAdvisor, Urban Spoon, that, that kind of deal, right? So if somebody has a one or two star review, she answers them in public as you should every time. Answer everybody. She says, hey, I'm terribly sorry. Da, da, we're going to make sure we take this under advisement. We'll let the store manager know. You know, the, the usual customer service playbook. Great. Sure. Perfect. But it's what she does next that's so noteworthy. So she usually waits a couple hours. And then in many cases, she'll answer them again, but this time in private, using the back, you know, private messaging function of all these sites. She says, you know, I, I left you a message a minute ago, but I've been thinking, and, and you you are a particularly perceptive customer. You, you see things that other people simply don't see. You have a gift for this. What I'd like to do with your permission is I'd like to send you two gift cards a month. And with each of those gift cards, I'd like you to visit a different La Pan Quotidian location. And upon the conclusion of your visit, I'd like you to click this link and fill out this very detailed survey of your experiences because you notice things that people simply don't notice. Your feedback can make us the best bakery cafe chain in the world. Will you do that for me? And it totally works. She has more than 150 now of these secret shoppers working for her all the time, filling out these super detailed That's experiences. Awesome. She turned hate into help. And the total cost of that program, some gift cards. Yeah. Total cost is remarkable. Like <laughs> everybody should do that. Like, like do it in every business, right? Say, just tell us exactly what, tell me, hundred percent. What was your experience with this, um, with, with this verge? And I will send you a gift card to Upland, right? Just, yeah. you know, tell me everything. Um, that kind of solicitation of detailed feedback is, uh, is really priceless. Well, and it's memorable and remarkable too. Absolutely. Which is fantastic. 
Jay, I, I'm really excited about the book. Um, we've bought 10 copies to give Thank to you. our listeners and our Ooh. readers. So drop a comment below with something you learned or an interesting thing Do it. Uh, about Jay or customer service that you just loved. And uh, we'll send 10 copies out to the very first kind. Thank you very much for your support. Jay, if people want to get the book, uh, where do they go? So you can get the book in all the places and ways that books are available uh, online, offline, your local bookseller, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, audio as well, read by myself and Tom Webster. Awesome. Um, that's available. And if you go to Hug yourhaters.com, which is the official site for the book, uh, and buy it there from me. Uh, I'll ship it to you for free. And there's all kinds of special bonus stuff you can get, including, which I'm going to hook you up with here in just a second, the limited edition, incredibly awesome. I love haters socks. Oh, what? I'm getting a pair of, you are getting a pair of awesome socks. That that is awesome. That's awesome socks right there. Cool. Jay, thank you so much. Uh, and I, I really appreciate you hosting me here in Bloomington, Indiana. Anytime. Come on down. All right, brother. Thanks. Hey, Matt here again. That's it for today's episode of Powder Keg Igniting Startups. Thank you so much for listening. Please make sure you follow Jay at jbear on Twitter and check out his personal website at jbear.com. That's jbear spelled J-A-Y-B-A-E-R.com. And also make sure if you haven't already, grab a copy of his book, Hug Your Haters. You'll be so glad you did. And if you don't have a copy yet and you'd like me to send you a copy, just drop a comment in the show notes page for this episode and tweet at jbear to say thanks for being on the show. And you, of course, can find those show notes at powderkeg.co and just find the J-Bear episode there. I'll be picking three of those comments at random and we'll send you a copy of Jay's book, Hug Your Haters, absolutely free. So check out the show notes page at powderkeg.co. Drop a comment there. Again, make sure you tweet at Jay. Let him know what you appreciated about this episode or ask him if you have any follow-up questions. And I will see you in the next episode. Just a little reminder, Powder Keg is presented by Verge, which is a network of local communities with global reach for tech entrepreneurs, investors, and top talent growing companies beyond Silicon Valley. We have a ton of free resources for starting and growing your business at our website, which is just vergehq.com. We also host several events every month around the country. So check us out, see where we're going to be. Maybe we can link up in person. Would love to see you, meet you, have a conversation. And again, you can find all that information on our website at vergehq.com. And of course, you can always find me, Matt Hunkler, on Twitter. And I'm just at Hunkler. I appreciate the follow. I appreciate the conversation and all of the ideas that we've been sharing back and forth over the last several weeks since launching the podcast. Podcast. Thanks to all of our powder keggers out there who already left us a review on iTunes. Just a little reminder that you can leave us your honest review on iTunes by going to this link, powderkeg.co slash iTunes. Give us a subscribe while you're at it and we'll be forever indebted to you. It's your reviews, it's your subscriptions and your feedback that help us get better and reach more people to help them grow and scale their companies beyond Silicon Valley. And again, that link is powderkeg.co slash iTunes. We've got guests like Paul Singh from 500 Startups and Results Junkies who's traveling all over the country investing in startups. Emerson Sparts from Dose.com who started his entrepreneurial journey selling things on MuggleNet a website for Harry Potter fans. And then we've also got Brian Clark, well-known entrepreneur from Copyblogger. All of that coming up soon on Powder Keg, igniting startups.